spending more time learning along the way and then also being more patient are two things I wished, but I don't think if someone told me that at the time, I would have listened. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Rip Pruskin, who is the CEO and co-founder of Rip Van. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. So I want to kind of dive in. Can you tell me what is Rip Van and what's the origin story for the business? Yeah, Rip Van is a better-for-you snack food company. The origin story of the business was actually in my dorm room in college. I went to Brown, graduated, and decided to bring over my favorite treat back back home from the Netherlands called the Stroopwafel. It's kind of a waffle-patterned cookie with a caramel filling. And joined hands with Marco De Leon, my co-founder and friend from college. And we started making them, selling them on Main Green, selling them to local cafes. And then from there, scaled our business over the, the coming years. So you mentioned that you guys were college students and kind of created the business right out of that. Now, neither of you had any background in the, the food space, correct? Correct. Mar- Marco was doing an internship in Morgan Stanley in investment banking. I interned at McKinsey and we both looked at each other and were like, we really want to build something. And uh, we didn't really know what, and I'd kind of gone through that process and, and, and realized that, Hey, cookie market, massive category, love this product growing up. Perhaps we can bring it over to the U S and uh, we both thought it was a really fun idea to work on. And, and that's how we started on our first product, which is Rip Van Waffles. And so when you look at those first few products that you came out with, you were more in the cookie space than the better for you space. It had significantly more sugar, didn't boost the high fiber that the product does today. What was that pivot where you decide to switch to that more better for you snacking side of things? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think part of it was inspiration and just value driven. And then part of it was understanding how could we reach our consumer and and who's that consumer. So I think, you know, we realized a couple of things. One is we wanted to create a product that actually had an impact. And we wanted that impact to be as profound as as it could be within snacking. And then the second thing is what do people really care about? And so we already had a product that was totally foreign. And so we had to have a bridge essentially to connect the consumer to our product. And we thought low sugar was kind of the critical mega trend that we're going to see grow and grow over the next 20 plus years. Sugar is a bad thing. And if you look at cookies, by and large, whether it's an Oreo or you know a premium Tate's, they both have north of 10 grams of sugar per serving. And so we thought, well, if we could take this product, which rivals these products in taste, the Stroopwafel essentially, and reduce the sugar levels significantly and make the product more nutritious, we'd give people a better option. And the other thing we loved about the Stroopwafel is that it's a snack in Holland that's consumed by everyone, whether you're a kid, whether you're in college, whether you're working or you're a senior citizen. Everyone loves the products, so one of these universal products. And so I thought if we could 
make it healthier and make it accessible in the U.S., and it has this appeal, it could be the next big cookie. Now, when you thought about you know that next big cookie and you know really launching it, where did you start your journey? Where were the the first retailers that really embraced it, and how did you think about that go to market discovery? Yeah, so we um, you know we wanted to grow the business and generate revenue and generate cash. It was really important to us to have the independence and be able to kind of propel the business forward versus taking a lot of investment up front, diluting ourselves out of the company. And so what we did initially was where could the product really move? Where's their natural product market fit? And where's the cost of acquisition of a customer the lowest, given the resources that we had, right? Because we only had so much time. It was Marco and myself. And so we first started selling to college cafes. So we got into about 30 college cafes, but we realized that to merchandise our product in each of these locations required distribution support and merchandising support because we could clearly see colleges we visited and helped merchandise the product. We had significantly better performance than in colleges where the product sold out and would take three, four days to restock the product. And so we actually pivoted in our go-to-market strategy where we moved the business to the Bay Area for a while, where we realized that tech companies were giving snacks away for free to their employees. This is obviously pre-pandemic when people were in offices. And so we're very early on that bandwagon. So we're one of the first snacks at Google, at Facebook, at Yelp, at Box, at Dropbox, you name it. And from there, we were able to build a nice business and then start expanding into different channels. So then we expanded into Whole Foods regionally. We expanded to Pete's Coffee. And then eventually we got into Starbucks. And, you know, think about today, that expansion has gone into more traditional retail as well. So you recently launched in Costco, for instance, with a larger format. What led to you looking at those uh, more traditional channels? So as I said, you know, our mission was to be a ubiquitous snack, right? And so just to spell out our mission, our mission is to improve people's lives by inventing better convenient foods. And by people, we really mean broad range of people. And so unless the brand could really land in a major retailer and land across different geographies, we wouldn't really be able to kind of live that mission. So from the onset, we've always wanted to be in large retailers, but from a exposure standpoint, in terms of brand equity, in terms of familiarity with the type of product, if you expand too quickly into these channels, A, as you know, like slotting fees are crazy and the cost of marketing support is really high. So you need those resources. But on the other hand, if the product doesn't perform well, then you're kind of stuck because you lose your credibility in that store in that chain. And that kind of is going to stunt your growth because without good performance, why would another retailer bring you on board? So when we started the conversations with Costco, we had a lot more data. We knew that the product worked well across different channels. We knew that the product worked well across different geographies. We knew that it was not a coastal product, that only people on the West Coast or the East Coast bought the product. We saw success in other parts of the country as well. And so I think that gave us the the confidence 
and reassurance to say, hey, yes, you know what? If we have the right pack type that will work for the Costco member, because we think the member demographic psychographically really overlaps with our core consumer. And regardless of geography, you know, the product's going to click. That's when we're like, okay, let's go for it. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So, you know, you've got some innovation that's come up recently with your new uh, birthday cake product, for instance. How have consumers inspired your choices of where you're taking the business and what you're launching? So our D2C site has been incredible for that. So we run post-purchase survey in which we ask consumers not specifically about innovation, but like, how can we improve? And we give them a multiple choice set of answers. And one of them is other products, right? Another one is other flavors. And so what we see is that a lot of consumers view Rip Van as a better for you snacking brand, not as a Stroopwafel brand, because they see the low sugar benefit that we've been delivering to them, something that they actually really want, and they want to see other products from us. And then we also see that people are looking for flavors they love in the Stroopwafels as well. So Birthday Cake was really a response to, we want more flavors. But similarly, to kind of build on what you're saying, we think that D2C and Amazon are are great testing platforms for new flavors, but then also for new product concepts entirely. And so you're going to see in uh, the next, actually, four weeks, a totally new product launch on the market. And uh, when it does, I'll I'll be able to share more. Oh, that's very fun. So... When you look at that world, you mentioned that you started with kind of an alternative channels, you know, folks like Starbucks, and then now you're in a fo- somebody like Costco that besides the fact they both call Seattle home, they're pretty different retailers. How have you had to change your business model to be able to respond to somebody like a Costco versus somebody like a Starbucks? So that's a really good question. I think, first of all, Supply chain is a huge driver of this, right? Because ultimately what a customer wants needs to fit their strategy as well. So you don't buy single units in Costco. You buy product in bulk in Costco. And so in a Costco size setting, you need to be able to produce the right amount of volume, but also of a custom pack type. In a food service type setting, you're producing smaller or larger volumes, but it's the same product that you're selling to all your other customers as your core skew, right? So I think you need to have the manufacturing flexibility and you need to have the manufacturing scale to be able to deal with larger and larger partners and more and more differentiated partners. And I think when you start off, you're trying to build volume with a few SKUs, 
right? Because then that gives you permission to actually go ahead and innovate and, and launch other products, whether it's other pack types of the same product or whether it's other products entirely. And so I think that comes with scale naturally, right? So the larger your business gets, the more resources you have and the more legitimacy you have with your manufacturing partners to do more custom things because you have that volume. So you're coming off a pretty exciting year for the business overall. Where do you see the business going over the next year and really over the call, let's call it the next five years? So we started very, very focused on one product line for a while. And I think with COVID, we really started building our, our e-commerce presence and having that direct dialogue with our consumers. And what that really inspired us, as I mentioned before, is that we have the option to provide them a range of different better free snacks. And so what we want to do is we want to really do two things. One is we want to expand Rip Van Waffles across the country, increase our penetration in the market, make it more a more ubiquitous product because we're still in the very early days of that, even though it's been a while. And that's going to really accelerate over the next couple of years. So we're really excited about that because we're gaining more brand equity and we're kind of at that tipping point. We also want to go abroad, right? So we want to bring the success we've had with Rip Van Waffles and go to other parts of the world. So we're busy with that as well. And then the second point is we really see our website as a platform, a testing platform to try you know, different product to respond to what consumers want, and then also test out hypotheses of what we think consumers want, even if they didn't mention it based on broader consumer trends. And in so doing, the ones that really resonate, we can then scale offline, but also we can build this platform where you can come to Rip Then and buy something for yourself, buy something for your wife, buy something for your kids, and you can all have your own snacks, right? You can eat snacks you eat together. You can have snacks that you eat separately that are convenient. And so a big focus over the next three years specifically is going to be turbocharging innovation. So we've been kind of disciplined, focused, and, and expanding omnichannel with one product line. We're going to test dozens of new product lines online. And I think that for us is super exciting because you just get to innovate, learn, and, and uh, it requires the team to move like incredibly quickly, which requires them to be very agile. So um, that's the trip we're currently on. So, you know, we started the conversation and you mentioned that you, you and your co-founder really started this business right out of college. Looking back, what's the one thing you wish you'd known when you started this business that you've learned along the way? Uh, <laughs> that's a, such a loaded question. Uh, it's a good one, though. Um, you know, I think, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think part of ignorance is that you have this freshness, this courage, and you don't let the fear of low probability get to you, right? You're like, let's give this a shot. You know, it's, it's going to work out. And so even though, you know, rationally, like most startups fail, you believe your startup's going to work, right? So I think that's a very good thing and engineering that state of mind. But on the other hand, when you're so inexperienced like we were, 
you also don't know a lot. And that's a huge impediment because you're initially learning by doing, by making mistakes and getting lucky on certain respects. And then basically then machine learning algorithm is very, very basic and there's very little data. And so it takes some time to and resources to essentially get better. And so while you're trying to operate the business, you're learning how to, and you're also going from being a very poor operator to a relatively better operator in time. And so I think that could feel painful in retrospect. You're like, oh, if I would have known this and this, I wouldn't have made that mistake. But then again, there are two sides to a coin, right? Because in a CPG business, if it takes longer to build that distribution, build those relationships, get the core innovation right, once you have that, you can really scale. So maybe you have more knowledge and maybe you would have shaved off a year or two, but it was still taking quite a long time right, to get to the point where you are. And so, yeah, I mean, I think as we went along, we learned really talk to people who've done similar things before. I know a lot of people say that, but that's incredibly important. And then two is really understanding how to think for yourself. I know it sounds really silly, but like most people, myself included, don't think for themselves on a regular basis. And so if you actually look at things from their fundamentals and you're like, okay, well, how do I solve this problem? This is how this person has done it. How does that fit into the context of where we are? What knowledge do we need to acquire or resources do we need to acquire in order to de-risk the chance of actually achieving that goal? That exercise is incredibly valuable because you see things that heuristics don't give you, right? I'll take a very, very tangible example. You can hire many people that are really good at what they do and increase your SGNA substantially, or you can understand how things work, set up a system, bring in executional offshore resources, and execute on that same strategy for one-tenth the cost. One, the first one may work, but you, you lose all the capital because you're burning through all that SGNA. The second one, you have a lot more gunpowder and you're actually running a tighter ship because you understand the mechanics of how things actually work. And that goes to like getting better at operating, right? Which is a learning process. So I know that was a very convoluted answer. I'm glad I started young, spending more time learning along the way and then also being more patient are two things I wished, but I don't think if someone told me that at the time, I would have listened, <laughs> which brings me to the last point, which is like, try and really listen and be open-minded because I know so little. And so by kind of opening yourself up to solutions, you might actually see how to prevent obstacles when they come your way or see opportunities when they come your way. I think that is amazing advice and kind of a great point to uh, to end on. So I really appreciate you taking the time to tell the story of Rip Van Waffles and everything you guys have accomplished with the business. Pleasure, Dave. Was uh, was super fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com. <laughs>